Our text this morning is from Titus 3, so I encourage you to turn there. We end our look in the pastorals today, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Um, And we begin the book of Joel next week, so let me encourage you to begin your own personal reading and study of that book. Um, I know it will bring us great joy and great... um, Enrichment as we come to it, but it is difficult. It's it's not something like a gospel or a letter from Paul. It's a you know it's a minor prophet, and so it does take some work. And so let me encourage you again strongly just to begin reading through that and studying before we go to the Lord. Uh, before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word here in this book of Titus, we pray that You would. Have it to lay bare on our hearts. Um, we know that um, these books that you that you used Paul to write to Timothy and to Titus are about your church, and we pray that you would help us to see that not only in the life of this church, but in our own lives as individuals. Help us to know what we ought to do. Help us to know what we ought to believe. So, Lord, as we open this word this morning, we pray that you would convict us of our sin where they are that you would show us your truth and that you would guide us to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, there was this one thing that just kept sticking out to me, and it's this, it's this idea of this, the balance of being called and, and being called according to grace and then being um, told to do and, and called to act in a certain way. And so one of the things that that really came to me as I was reading this was Peter's call um, and how he was called to follow the Lord. So turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses, and I'm going to read this. This will be a way to introduce our passage today. It should be a familiar passage to you, but I think the narrative arc here really follows kind of where we're going with, with these whole, with our series in the pastorals. It says this, Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, so he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they had filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And they had brought their boats to land. They left everything and followed him. And so notice, this, notice how this narrative goes. 
it has this back and forth. It's very fascinating. It kind of crescendos at this idea of catching the fish. It says, you have first you have these professional fishermen who were there cleaning their nets, didn't catch anything all night. The teacher, according to them, I mean, we know that they may have met Jesus at this point, but he tells them to move their nets. Jesus isn't a fisherman. He's a carpenter. But it, Peter's like, okay, sure. They seem to doubt the teacher, but they say, well, we'll do it anyway. Why not, right? And now there are so many fish that they're breaking the nets and they're sinking the boats. I mean, this is more fish than these guys had caught probably all year combined. And now they're catching them all in one catch. It turns out that the teacher was also the Lord of creation and can actually just tell those fish to get in the net. And they will. And it turns out that the fishermen were just mere mortals. Nobody's in front of their creator. And now they know this. We see Peter's confession before the Lord. They stop fishing and they start following Jesus. Why? What happens here? What's going on in this story? It's not just a mere narrative about fishermen following a teacher. But Jesus changed them. He took their hearts, their minds, their eyes. He opened them. He made them see he wasn't just a teacher, but he was their Lord. Did he save them because they were good fishermen? There doesn't seem to be any any evidence in Scripture to suggest that they were good at fishing. Uh, every time they catch something, Jesus directs them to do it. Even Peter by himself, Jesus said, go out and catch this fish and there'll be a coin in its mouth. Jesus told them to catch fish. They did. We don't have any evidence that they were good at that. Did he do it because they were Jewish people? Again, we had no proof of that. Were they good men? Just basically good guys? No. They actually begin to know how not good they were when they're in front of their Savior. And so why did Jesus save them? Because he is Jesus, called the Christ, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And these hapless fishermen just happened to be some of those people. And now they would be fishing men or fishing for men. So in our text today, we're going to get this same progression without the great story attached to it. Instead, we're going to have the apostle reminding us why we do good, why we obey the law, not to earn our place, so that we can, but so that we can be devoted to good things, things that are excellent, things that are profitable. It's something that Paul has really hit on in this letter, I think, which it's just really a few short chapters. You know, if, if you think about it, we, if you look at this little letter to Titus from Paul, it's really instructions on how to plant a church. And I think it's important for us to do that, to look at it as such. As we close this book in our series on the pastoral epistles, I think it's a great reminder for us. But it's also a call to action. The world isn't getting any better. Without Jesus, it's going straight to hell. What are we doing about it, church? And so with that, we're going to consider two main ideas in this text today, the mercy of Christ to save, and then the devotion of the church to good works. So with that, let's read the text from Titus chapter 3. Please stand with me as we read this text. Titus chapter 3 in its entirety says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, 
to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of the loving and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As, a, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let your people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And just, just before we get into this particular text, I want just a couple of concluding remarks on this past or this series as a whole and the pastorals. Um, I think one thing that I've learned as I've gone through these, and the last time I studied these in any kind of depth, I was a young believer, probably still in my early 20s, actually. And if I've learned anything from this recent study of these books is that the Bible emphasizes the work of Christ as the only hope for his people. But it equally emphasizes the idea that the people of Jesus Christ should now be doing his works so that the world may see and that the world may know. I talked last week about how this pendulum of works and grace is swinging away from holiness and toward really this kind of cheap grace, a grace without Jesus attached to it. And we see that a lot in the church. There are many who might uh, hear the recent messages in Titus and think and call me a legalist, which sometimes I, I do fit that bill. However, I think the overwhelming theme of these three books has been the, the grace of Jesus Christ that saves and the works that the people of Christ are doing after their salvation. There's a perfect balance there. Christ saves us according to his works, and now we should be doing good things as a result of that. It's the plain Christian faith. Faith in Christ for salvation and faithful then in word and deed to each other and to the world. I think it's the key to our faith and consequently the key to the health of any particular church that we be doing those two things. And so I think it's just a way to sum up all of these books into one little package. And so with that, we'll look at this text. First, the mercy of Christ to save. Look there at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
Paul continues kind of here where he was in chapter 2 with instructions on, instructions on how we should behave uh, with reminders to us that we should submit to our authorities and be obedient in good works. He kind of gives a general overview in the following verses about what that it looks like. In verse 2, he says this, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Pretty much how we should be behaving, right? Toward all people. Paul doesn't separate those who are friendly to us and those who aren't, whom we should be treating this way. We should be treating all people this way, no matter how they treat us. This is hard for all of us. It's hard for me. We never want to return good for evil, at least most of us right up front, right? We want, to, we want revenge. That's kind of the human condition. Uh, we want we want to do what people have done to us. It makes sense. We always want to take the place of God on these types of things. We want to see those who hurt us. We want to see them suffer. We want to see them do poorly. It's human nature. I think Paul knew this, and this is why he followed up with the next idea. Verse 3. He's reminding us where we came from. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Before we start to get on some high horse that says, wait, I can get revenge and it's right for me to do that. Before, before we think that we cannot treat others kindly, we have to remember we were once all the things that we think they are now. We are sometimes still those things. If we're honest with ourselves, and even if we're not honest with ourselves, we're still those things. Slaves to various things, right? Various pleasures is what it says. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When I read the book of Proverbs, uh, or when I read this, the book of Proverbs kind of came to bear on me and made me think about it. How the book of Proverbs is really all about one thing, right? It's, it's about the foolish people and the wise people and how the wise people should avoid at all costs the foolish people. We are called to be wise rather than to be foolish. And Paul is saying you were once these foolish people, those who hated, who were hated by others and who hate each other. Well, if, if we're hated by others and we hate each other, then who loves anyone in this system? No one outside of Christ. This is the essence of every relationship, right? What is the essence of every relationship outside of Christ? Me. I'm the essence of every relationship outside of Christ. Me, me, me. I hate everyone. And everyone hates me. What? That doesn't mean that loving relationships can't happen outside of Christ. And I'm not saying that. I think unbelievers can still love one another because God is good. Uh, but you needn't look far to see how the presence of hate destroys any relationship, including our relationship with the Creator, which is really the essence of the fall of man, if you think about it, that he was once convinced to hate his Creator by the serpent, to see his Creator as kind of holding out on him rather than protecting him. And that's where all this hate comes from. This is where all sin comes from, really, how we related to our Creator before Jesus Christ. What did we want of our Creator before Jesus Christ? Nothing. We hated Him. We wanted Him dead. 
Though there is no killing God, of course, there's many who have tried to announce his death over the years. And then how does he respond? So let's look at this. We hated our creator before Jesus Christ. People have been announcing it since people have been announcing things. That God is dead. He no longer has any saying in our world, in our lives. And then how did he respond to that? Verse 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, there's a ton here in these three verses. Uh, we could spend a couple of millennia searching it out, and one day we'll get to do that, which is, which is great. But we have a few minutes to do that here, so, so bear with me. Um, we hated our Creator. It's our state before Christ. But when the goodness of God, our Savior, came, that changed. Who came? God, our Savior. God the Father came to us. He initiated the relationship. Not us. Remember, we were the foolish ones. We didn't somehow become wise and then go seeking out our Creator. We hated our Creator. We wanted Him dead. What did Adam and Eve do when they saw their sin? They went and hid. They didn't go find their Creator. They went and hid from Him. Why would we do any different? We didn't find Him in our wonderings. Well, I kind of came to Him as I wised up. No, that doesn't happen. He found us in a trash heap. We were dead in our trespasses. And then what did he do with us? He saved us. Those who hated him, those who hated each other, those who were foolish, those who were sacrificing idols and then rose up to play. If you want to take a, take a verse from Exodus, those who were being various slaves to various pleasures, he saved us. So let that soak in a little bit. Because even when you begin to attach any work to our salvation, this is where we come to. He saved us anyway. If we ever think that we could do something to somehow gain his love, we have to look at all the things we did to not gain it. All the things that we should do or that, that would cause us to be rejected by him. Constantly doing those things. Sometimes the last part of this passage is used to show how water baptism is a requirement for salvation, a necessary thing. This idea of, in verse 5 there, being uh, by the washing and regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit, that this is a somehow a prescription that we should somehow be baptized in order to get salvation. But what's the problem with that? Look at the very beginning of verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why would we ever begin to think that any work we have to offer him at all would ever be sufficient to save us while we were idol worshipers, while we were dead in our trespasses? How can a dead man bring something to him like a, a religious ceremony and say, see here, I've done this, now you can save me? That's not how it works. If it were like that, 
how could we ever think that if we were this bad, how could we ever think that like a dip in the tub would somehow wash us and wash that away as if it never happened? That real actual water could do that. It's not true. It can't happen. And consequently, think about some of those same groups that would tell us that you need water in order to be saved, that you need to go through this ceremony in order to be saved. What do they also tell you? You can now lose that salvation. And I hope you see why as a result of this. Because if you only need to be dumped to be saved, then you only need to get dirty again to lose your salvation. Right? If you have to go in here and be baptized to get saved, then... You only need to mess up once in order to need that same thing again. If water makes you clean before God, then any sin makes you unclean. Who can ever stand before God if that is a requirement? So, he saved us, not according to, his, to our works, but according to his own mercy. So use that same idea. If he saved us according to his mercy... Then what is it that keeps me saved? His mercy. Why doesn't he wipe me off the face of the earth? His mercy. I cannot at all make his mercy any less powerful because God cannot be made less than he is. He saves me and he keeps my salvation secure because of him, not me. Because of the power of his mercy, not me. If it's ever up to me, I need to go back home and go sleep in on Sundays instead because there's no hope here. If it's up to me, brothers and sisters, there's no hope at all in these words. None. We're wasting our time. But because it's up to Jesus, there is hope. Absolute, 100% hope. And we ought to be here worshiping him. If it's true by his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, the father, poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that, too. I don't have time to hit on it. I wish I did. Um, But please note the triune nature of our salvation. We have God, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit here working as one to bring about the redemption of their people, of the people who don't deserve it. But they are working together to bring about that. If you ever wonder what it means when John says God is love, here you go. Read Titus 3. This is the very essence of love, that God, Father, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, would be working together in order to bring about salvation for their derelict people. It's incredible. So he saved us, according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Spirit. What does this mean? Turn with me to Exodus, or not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 11. In my old Bible, I had a path worn to Ezekiel. We have to establish new paths and new Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. What does this mean? Washing, regeneration of the Spirit. It says this, And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, speaking of the people of God, and I will give them one heart 
and the new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their gods. Turn me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. We've often quoted this passage. I think it's good to, to turn here and see it. From time to time. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 29. The same idea of the cleansing that we receive. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And the new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. So the question is, as we read from Ezekiel, the question is, is it the water that regenerates us, that renews us, or is it the very Spirit of God himself in us, causing us to walk as he would have us? Again, brothers and sisters, if it's the water, we should just live in a tub of it and never walk out of it. But if it's the Spirit, however, we are clean, we are new. We are made clean. We are made new through the work of Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God living in us. It does not leave us when we mess up. It stays here. So why am I clean? Because of what he's doing, not because of what I've done or not done. And it's through this, the act of our trying God, that we can believe He goes on to say that we can become heirs according to the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life. So the question is, what do we do with that? Well, that brings us to the next point, the devotion of the church to good works. Verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy and and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What we just worked through, verses 4 through 6, this is the trustworthy saying, right? That God saves his people, not according to their works, but according to what he did. So what is Titus to do with this statement when he goes to the churches? He is to insist upon it he is to commandment to command it he is to make it a word that is brought bare to the hearts of the people of god in the cities that he is to go to why is he to do this so that those who believe in god can be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people We are to devote ourselves to good works, as opposed to what? Well, he goes on. Verses 9 and 10. Avoid 
foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the opposite of what he's calling us to do, the opposite of good works. It's the same things that we've read throughout First and Second Timothy, and now in Titus, this idea of foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions about the law. Why does Paul spend so much time talking about what is foolish, about foolish controversies and all these dissensions? You want to know why he spends so much time in it? Spend just a little bit of time with any group, any Christian group, who is not talking about Jesus. They are talking about this garbage constantly. If we weren't focused on Christ, what would we be focused on? Everything else. And all those things cause dissension. If we aren't focused on the gospel, we're going to find some other thing that fits into one of these categories. It's a strong word to think this is just, it's unprofitable. It's worthless. This is what Paul calls it. Worthless. Now from time to time, there are these side issues in scripture that need to be discussed. But however, if we're ever using them to divide, if we're ever using them out of the context of the gospel and out of the context of Christ, then we're in trouble. I mean, consider this as we can begin to look at some of the different denominations in, in our Sunday school class. There's a really a razor's edge we have to walk in this discussion because I think there's a necessity for denominations but also there's a necessity for unity. And so I will save this till Sunday school, but I, I want to make sure we understand this, that we divide over the right things, but we're not dividing over Jesus Christ. We're given strict instructions then on how to deal with people who stir up trouble and who stir up this worthless talk. What does Paul say? Warn them a couple times, and after that, have nothing to do with them. Why have nothing to do with them? Because they're no good for the church. People who only wish to stir up trouble, what are they doing? They're not worshiping the Creator, they're worshiping themselves. The real trouble isn't with us, it's with them. We need to push them on. Repent and believe should be our only words to them. So then how do we, how do we devote ourselves to good works? We stick with the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than the things of anything that would point to us. The gospel is what stirred our hearts originally. He saved us, not according to works that we've done, but according to his own mercy. And so then that's what should continue to stir us to good works. When the gospel is our motivation for good works, when we see people as they are, we see the needs as they are. We are sinners who need a savior. We see a world under the curse we see our Redeemer as their only cure, not our works, but Him working through us. We see that. I mean, look at verse 14. What does Paul say about good works? Why are they important? Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. It's these devotion to good works. This is how Paul sees the needs of the world being met is the devotion of good works from the Christians. He sees the Christian church meeting the, good, meeting the needs of the people. And he also sees this devotion of good works is how fruit is being 
born in the life of a Christian. Our purpose, again, is to see the world come to know Jesus, to see him glorified. When that is our motivation, it takes away our fears. It takes away our inhibitions. We start to see the love of Christ making changes in people. It's a good thing. All of our works, all of our own motivations kind of become a side issue to the issue of making Christ known and seeing people be saved. And so in conclusion, the gospel that we have isn't one that we came to. We didn't come to understanding of the gospel through looking at the the world around us by somehow deriving wisdom from the wisdom of this world. The gospel that we have is because he came to us, which is the gospel. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were haters of God, he was a lover of us. And so what we do with that, let us remember that it's the gospel that is the power of salvation. Not any work that we can drum up, but only through him. And so then let us endeavor to show Christ to a dying world. It's desperate for him. We can only show him by how we love the world. And so let us do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are, we are so thankful for the gospel. It's, it's clear we can't escape it. As we read any book, any chapter of this word that you've given us, it is unescapable that we are undeserving, that you are good, and you have made us new. And so, Lord, help us to live as if that's true. It really is. Help it to be the thing that changes us so that we might want to see others changed. Encourage us, strengthen us, grow us in the gospel that we might no longer be talking about worthless things, but we would only be talking about Christ. And Lord, help us to not only want this for all the world, but to see this in particular for our community here, that we want to see this community reached for Jesus Christ. We want to see his name made known. We want to see see people made new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.